podcast. I'm Justin Zara. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And you can find me on social media at Justin Bizarro on both Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. I've recently added that. And you can find the podcast at Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs on both Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, I'm a food entrepreneur. Uh, we started this podcast to give back. We don't advertise. We give it away for free. So thank you everyone across the world who's listening in. We appreciate it. My background, basically, I've been in food uh, 17 years. Uh, my family's been in food over 40 years, and uh, it's various businesses related to food. We manage over $100 million in food production a year, and so that's sort of the gist, producing basically over 33, 30 million meals a year and 33,000 meals a day in some of our locations. So that's my background. Today, I have with us Chris Van Dyne of Cosmic Pie Pizza from Oakland, California. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing good, Justin. Thanks. And so, Chris, let's let's dive in right away. I mean, what's your background and, and how did you sort of take on this venture, being pizza? Yeah, well, I've always, I've always um, you know, obviously loved food and um, just kind of got got into cooking it um, and making food more with an ex-partner who had a passion for it. She kind of taught me the ropes and, um, you know, uh, what's not to like about pizza. It's kind of the, the best food in my mind. It really incorporates a lot of, you know, kind of cooking skills that I think are, are key in the kitchen. You know, you, you get, first and foremost, you get the bread making, which, um, you know, uh, baking is, is definitely a, kind of has that aspect of science, um, as well as flavor and just all the, all the elements that I find interesting in cooking and then, you know, me- messing around with various sauces, toppings. I mean, you get, you really get an opportunity to create something great with pizza. So I just kind of, um, launched into that, um, and, you know, you know, with the, uh, the mind of following your passion, just figured, you know, why not start a little pop-up restaurant? And that's what I did at, uh, the farmer's market in Castro Valley, just, you know, pretty close to Oakland here. I did that for, you know, about a, about a year or so. And now I'm just kind of doing it at, um, various private events, just, just making pizza just like, like I said, just following the passion. Well, this should probably be my most important question with the audience. Being a person that obviously sells pizza, what is your favorite kind of pizza? Toppings, etc. Well, I I'm actually a vegetarian, so I I don't um I don't put meat on my pizzas. I know most people are probably going to say like pepperoni and all that. Um, I do, I I like to get really experimental with my pizza and probably the best one that I make that, that really kind of pops some, has really popped some eyes over, over the past, over the years is, uh, my hoisin pizza. So it's like a, a hoisin, almost like a teriyaki sauce base with, uh, walnuts, uh, blue cheese, peaches, and, uh, fresh cilantro on top. I really like that one. So, uh, and I want to dive more into your pizzas, but just a question: I'm, do you make pizzas with meat, even though you're a vegetarian? I don't. I made one the I made one the other day at um, a tailgate party I did for the big game out here, Cal versus Stanford, but only because someone brought pepperoni and salami as a topping and told me to put it on on the pizza for them. Otherwise. That was probably the first meat pizza I've made in like four or five years since I've gone uh, vegetarian. So, okay, and I want to dive into this, but let's. So, tell me more about the different types of pizzas you make. I mean, do you customize it, or is it is it something you have your your favorite pizzas and go from there? So, how does sort of all of that work? Well, I I kind of look at cooking as my creative outlet. So I, I definitely don't stick to, um, you know, I always have like one or two kind of specials on the menu when I was doing the farmer's market. Essentially, I would I would have a few pizzas that people, you know, 
uh, got used to and they, you know, they were the fan favorite, so to speak. And I would have those on the menu regularly. And then I would always do one that was like a special. And, and I, w- I would use that special to get creative and kind of create uh, something new every week. So that's how the hoisin pizza came about. And then eventually, um, you know, people liked it so much that it became one of the regulars. So, you know, it's kind of a mix of both where I'm, I'm doing some pizzas that are the same every week and then using uh, the special to kind of create some new flavors. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about it before we got on, but you don't have an actual retail store. You're more of you, you take the pizza to the people and you sort of, you're like a pop-up restaurant. Is, is that correct? Correct. So I have um, two portable ovens. Uh, they're called Rock Boxes uh, by a company called Gozni out in the UK. And they really they run on propane, or they do have a wood attachment. But essentially, they're mimicking the brick um, brick oven uh, style pizza. So like they're Neapolitan style pizzas, and uh, they're cooked at high heat. So these ovens get up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, really get that kind of um, Neapolitan charring that you want on the crust that uh, you're going to see out of wood-fired brick ovens um, in the traditional Neapolitan style. So, so, and I want to talk about that more, too, because, I mean, one, you're the first pizza company we've, or pizza entrepreneur we've had on the podcast. So, what is, Mm -hmm. when you say Neapolitan, Politan, which is from Naples um, style, but I believe. And, you know, what is that? What's the difference in that pizza versus other pizza crusts? Yeah, so it's a, um, it's a, it's a high heat, um, uh, you know, like a hand stretched pizza that um, traditionally doesn't have it's it very simple ingredients. So it's going to be flour, water, yeast for me i actually cultivate my own yeast so it's a sourdough crust but i think a lot of um you know italian pizza makers in in naples and 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 the folks making neapolitan pizzas will use commercial yeast but it's essentially no oil um the way a new york style pizza uh, might be um or even chicago and detroit style might have some oil in it it's really kind of pure ingredients so flour, salt, and water, um, and yeast. And then it's cooked in a very high temperature, um, oven. So, you know, 800, eight to 900 degrees or higher. And it's just kind of blasted with heat. So you're going to get some of that, like that charring where you see, um, the, the crust that is almost blackened and, and, uh, leopard, what they call leopard spotting. Uh, is the term that they use. So it's going to be the small little bubbles that are blackened. That's sort of the typical look for a Neapolitan style pizza. So it's not to be mistaken if it's burnt or not. It just has the bubbles because that's part of the appeal, that crunchy sort of flavor integrated in with the pizza and the marinara sauce and the cheese or whatever type of sauce it is, etc. Correct. I mean, I would say that, that um, you know, you don't want to burn the crust it's going to be almost like a a white to golden um color like around the 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 majority of the crust but then you're going to have some of these little bubbles that that pop out and get blackened and that that gives it it's the neapolitan it's crust it's um kind of signature flavor and that's a result of like you, you know you ball the dough up um and let it ferment in ball form and then you press from the middle of the dough out to the edges, and it forces the air out into the crust. And that's what it enables it to um, to bubble out and blacken, giving it that flavor. Okay, so let's um, let's dive into. Uh, you said you went vegetarian about five years ago, and I want to dive into this because mm-hmm. obviously you're you're now. We've talked about the meat, so no meat. You you stay true to your palate and in your diet or however you, your lifestyle, I guess would be a better word. Um, explain sort of the mindset behind the switch over, because again, this is something new we haven't talked about in the podcast. So I really want to dive into it. 
And really, I'm curious Mm -hmm. about it because, personally, because Deborah and I, we just watched the Game Changers um, documentary on Netflix. So I'm curious about, you know, the vegetarian lifestyle and, and, and how you came to a decision to go that direction, if you don't mind talking about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I almost, um, it's easy to, to, I mean, I could t- probably talk for an, an hour on this alone. So I'll try to summarize it as best as I can. Uh, y- you know, I, I think it had always kind of been on my mind a little bit just because just surely out of a love for animals. I mean, I have two dogs. <clears throat> I, I have actually two dogs and four cats. So grew up with animals, just, you know, love animals. And I, there's always just been a little bit of a, huh, should, do we really have to be killing animals in order to to survive in the back of my mind? But, you know, meat is delicious. So I, I, you know, I, I just kind of turned a a blind eye to it. And then just one day, you know, I was at a, like a music festival and one of my friends kind of turned me on to a couple documentaries Cowspiracy, Forks Over Knives, um, uh, to name a couple that I, and it just kind of allowed me to see a little bit more of the sort of practices that were going on with factory farming, um, some of the health benefits of of going vegetarian for some people. Uh, And it just, there was many different things that were kind of pointing for me to go vegetarian, some of it just being like a, a spiritual thing that's just, you know, not wanting to to harm another life form unless you have to. Um, it, it was, so it's, to kind of answer your question, it was multiple different sources kind of pointing at it, and it just made me decide to do it. Um, it, it the main thing for me is that I don't actually want to kill animals. And so I don't, I didn't feel it was right for me to delegate someone else to do it for me. You, you see what I'm saying? So, no, absolutely. Um, for some people, yeah. And, and for some people, you know what, they might, they might be okay killing animals or they all, they see, um, animals as, as, as food, not as pets. And for those people, I, I get it. You go, go on enjoying meat. But for me, I, I just like, I don't, I just don't see animals as a food source as much as other people do. It's a totally personal choice. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that it's right for everybody, but, um, that's what it, you know, I felt like it was right for me. Yeah. One of the things that I find interesting in it and, um, and as someone who, who does eat meat and have, has started moving more towards more vegetarian based foods or plant-based foods um not just because i feel better when i eat that way um and less grains and stuff like that and and minimize some of that stuff that's in my diet and cleaner foods for sure uh being in food as long as i have you know i understand that you know the compounding effect of of food and things like that on people so i'm always interested how people get where they are you know i got where i am through one exercising and wanting to feel better about myself, but mainly because I've been in food for so long, particularly in health food that I've began to understand food differently. And it's always different for people. And it's something we do. Obviously you're supposed to eat three to four meals, depending on what diet you're on a day, um, or just in general to Mm -hmm. survive. And we really, it's a personal expression of who we are and, and what we think and our beliefs in a much deeper level than we ever account for. And so, you know, totally. hearing your, hearing what you said, I mean, there's a core value there and a core belief inside you that has to do with animals and cruelty and, and things like that. And, and that's where it resides with you and how you demonstrate that it is and practice it, not only thinking it or having a belief is in your food. And I think that's pretty cool. So I can't imagine it's a big step, but it's um, it's discipline, I got to say. And, and when you believe in it, it probably makes it that much easier. Because I know for me, it's a lot easier to give up gluten and give up potatoes and things like that. Because I believe in the diet that and lifestyle that I'm living. So that's pretty neat. Totally. And 
Yeah, and and it's it's a big part of why I wanted to become you know kind of get into the food business because I feel like it's a, it's an opportunity for me to make an impact. Um, that not only is cooking a passion of mine, but you know the environment is a is a passion of mine. Animals are a passion of mine. So it's a it's a way for me to do do the thing that I love and also hopefully make an impact on the world where I can make pizza something that has traditionally been eaten with, um, you know, you know, covered in meat and show people, Hey, you know what? You can also do it without meat, and it still tastes great. So, and hopefully that, that can, you know, just building our awareness of that a little bit, um, can help to reduce some suffering in the world, you know, and, and raise a little bit more awareness of how, how, <clears throat> animals are treated in these factory farms, um, how, what environmental impacts, um, you know, huge, uh, <clears throat> animal farming has on the world. So, um, anyway, that's, that's kind of how I, I got there as far as making only veg- <laughs> vegetarian pizzas. No. And it's, uh, and, and see that lifestyle and, and the way you live has turned into a business. Basically that's, that's pretty neat. And obviously you're quite a ways into this. So, you know, I think that's pretty cool. So, I mean, let's take a step further on this conversation. So is because you do vegetarian pizza, a big appeal for your customers? I mean, that's obviously a segment. I mean, I eat meat, but I would eat a vegetarian pizza. I mean, I have nothing against it. So do you see that people don't care what kind of pizza it is as long as it's a pizza? Or do you see that a lot of your clientele is actually vegetarian? Well, um, I think that there are a lot of um, people. I mean, I, I would be I would be lying if I didn't get a, a lot of customers that would ask for pepperoni pizza. Um, I, I did find a, a vegetarian pepperoni that was actually pretty good. So I would just tell people once after I found that I was about halfway into my venture at the farmers market. I, I found that and. You know, I would tell people, yeah, I have I have pepperoni pizza. It's vegetarian, but um, it is pepperoni, and they would usually order that. Now, now before I found that pepperoni pizza, I would people would ask for pepperoni, and I would say, no, we don't we don't do pepperoni. Um, we're a vegetarian, um, you know, restaurant only. Very few people would would turn away and just say, oh, never mind. I mean, it happened here and there. Usually people would say, "Oh, okay, I'll try the the mush the mushroom with white sauce one." So, I don't I don't think I, I think people are willing to explore vegetarian options for sure. Absolutely, and I think it's becoming more mainstream. And and to take the even more full circle is that people are starting to get an understanding of how much land or the rainforest that's being taken down for farming of animals and sort of. You know, the animal eats, you know, 100 grams, let's argue, of protein to produce, you know, about 10 grams of protein that we get in our food. So there's a downward Mm -hmm. cycle and they take up more room and we get it. And, you know, there's things like regenerative farming and circular farming that's coming out to help with some of that, to, to give it a full circle so the animals aren't as destructive. But still, at the end of the day, you know, you're right. There is the the factory slaughtering. There is the slaughtering of the animals that still happens. And people don't realize it. And we talk a lot about it in our business is that, you know, even that, you know, how an animal is slaughtered has a big deal to do with the quality of it or, or how it's raised or the humanity or the meat or stuff like that. And that's a hard thing. You know, that's a hard thing when you actually go into a chicken plant or a you know, that's processing chickens or beef. And I, you know, I don't, I sit differently than you obviously on my views, but you know, what you're saying there is, there's, it's 100% accurate because it is done the way that you're describing. And so that's Mm -hmm. where the differences of opinion fall. And can I, you know, you know, that's where it's a moral decision, ethical decision, which I think is a hard conversation. It's way deeper than this podcast needs to get into, but that's, Mm. that's what we're looking at, right? We know it happens. Now we've got to make a moral and ethical decision based on our own values. And I think that's pretty cool. So, and brave. Exactly. 
I mean, and and I think it's I, I think that's different for everybody. And again, it, it gets and that's the main reason for me going vegetarian. I mean, like I said before, some people look at animals as they they have no problem looking at them as a food source. That's it. They're not pets. They're just food. I just personally have a hard time doing that, and so I I don't want to delegate. I, I, I don't. I, when I see a package of meat, I see like my dogs essentially, you know, whereas some people see a package of meat that came from a cow that, that was food. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's just a personal choice. And that's for me to go against that would be, I think, I think morally, um, yeah. you know, morally wrong, but for other people, it's not, uh-huh. um, the, the the environmental thing, you know, after Cowspiracy came out, I don't know if, it, if and it's familiar with that documentary. It's a great documentary, but really kind of railed on the environmental impact of going veggies, you know, of uh, uh, animal farming. And some of that stuff, I think, has been revealed to be maybe not quite as accurate. Uh, the environmental part of it, I think, is kind of lower down on the list for me. Um, but I, I think all, everyone agrees, you know, meat eaters, everyone, they, they agree that the factory farming and the treatment of animal, I mean, if you watch any of those documentaries, if you have any, any resemblance of, of a sane mind, you, you would agree that those practices are wrong. So, um, I think it's just bringing awareness to the, to that stuff and, and letting people make, make their own decisions. So. Well, and I would be surprised, honestly, and I know 4-H and stuff, people have pigs and, and cows and, and they understand it and there's a difference there and the understanding they're kind of the pet, but they're also the food source and stuff like that. So they get a different relationship there. But I would be surprised if a lot of people didn't sort of have the dilemma that goes on, which is, you know, I have a dog or I have a cat and then I'm also eating meat. I mean, cross the mind at some point in time. I mean, I'd be surprised if most people, you know, that had animals as pets didn't every once in a while question that or or think about it. Because, it, I mean, I know I have, you know, even before we've ever talked, it is something that every once in a while I'm like, hmm, you know, so it's like, am I being a hypocrite about this by, you know, eating meat on my plate and then wanting to love my dog and wanting him to live forever and doing whatever I can, you know <laughs> what I mean? So, you know, it definitely sure. consciously crosses my mind on a regular basis and, in a way deeper level than probably people understand and, and what goes on, I'm very internal and I juggle a lot of things internally and, and my purpose and stuff like that. But it's pretty, it's pretty awesome that you're doing it. I think it's a brave thing because, you know, people still, I mean, we're a meat eating culture, you know, around the world and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's hard. There's some place in the world you can find vegetarian, but I do know this, um, you know, where I really lie is eating meat long-term for humans, um, whether it's generations, it's just not sustainable. The thing is, is, you know, the more we grow as, as a population, we're going to need more efficient food sources and animals Mm -hmm. growing fields of corn and whatever else and weed and whatever else to then feed animals to feed us taking up all that land it's just not long-term efficiency why because it's a simple math equation there's only so much land to do so many things and we've got to live on the land we've got to have enough water for the land and then there's got to be enough food to feed all of us and our pets you know so exactly and i and i think that's why you're seeing the big money being dropped into some of these plant-based um you know quote-unquote fake meats like the impossible burger and beyond meat i mean these are big like you know venture venture capitalists are are sinking millions and millions of dollars into these ventures and it's because they they see the same thing that you you just mentioned i mean in the long term call it 100 years call it 500 years whatever eventually i mean the price of of beef is going to be too expensive to feed all the people in in India or Asia. I mean, it's just not it's not going to be possible. So we got to find a, a, a better way. Yeah, exactly. And you know, regardless of where you fall on it morally, um, you know, or ethically as a human being, 
that this is the reality we're going to face. And it's not like, you know, we're probably not going to see it in our lifetime, but I would fairly say that at some point humanity is going to have the dilemma. And the other reality, in my opinion, and, and I talk about this a lot, um, is food deserts, places that can't feed their populations because they, you know, there's not enough water or there's not enough animals or there's, you know, there's not enough places for them to graze to even grow the animals. And, you know, we're talking about importing, exporting. I get it, but it makes things more expensive. But the reality is food's going to need to always come local at some point. And when you have a food mm-hmm. deserts and we're talking about indoor agriculture or factories, if you will, we're way better off controlling water sources, controlling environments through hydroponics and aquaponics and indoor farming of plants, mm-hmm. you know, and fruits and vegetables yeah. and whatever. So it's just, you know, in order to do that, if you really want to fix starvation, you really want to fix obesity and you really want to fix all these food borne problems. It has to come from plants like that much is clear because that's the only way Mm -hmm. to control it, to control the nutritional values. You've got to really hone down on those things and it produces more food to feed more people nutritiously than, than other ways of doing it. So I'm not trying to disrupt it or I don't, you know, say I have any problem with the meat industry. It's just inevitably, this is the, this is the way to solve the problem. So, you know, And if you think about it, it kind of, um, I, I think the diet, I can't remember exactly what Michael Pollan suggests, and his, I think it's Omnivore's Dilemma, or maybe yeah, one of those exactly books. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, it's like eat eat um, whole foods, not too much of it, and mostly plants, or something along those lines. Yeah. And and I, and I think it, it kind of... Um, you know, it kind of mimics what, I mean, speaking of the the fad diets, the paleo diets and what have you, I mean, it, that kind of mimics what, what our, our ancestors ate. Um, it, it, we didn't eat meat that much. We didn't eat meat every day, you know, when we were hunter gatherers. So it, it, it was, it was something that came around probably once a week or something like that on special occasions. And I feel like if we could get back to that, where all of us were, we're eating meat once a week. I mean, then the world would probably be a, a much better place. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's just, you know, it's just the level at which we're doing it. it like you said, it's, it's not su- sustainable. So, yeah. And I agree with you on that 100% and our bodies and the way we were, we're plant primarily plant-based. Now that doesn't mean we don't supplement things or, you know, up in Alaska, they don't eat a lot of fish when it's time or caribou when it's time, but it's not around all the time. They don't catch enough fish every day to eat, you know, three pounds of meat a day or protein. They're getting it from a lot of different sources in order to have those diets. And why one Mm -hmm. population or culture may have more fish or more meat than another. Um, the reality is, is we're still built to process plants more efficiently than we are meat. And that's just, that's just the way it is. And that doesn't mean we should, you know, like I said, it depends where you are morally, whether you want meat or whatever, but you're right. You know, if we could slim it down or we could, you know, eat more plants, it would be a different environment. And the other part of it is, you know, plants exert CO2, I mean, absorb CO2 and absorb oxygen. And animals are like us. We, they breathe in oxygen, exert CO2. So the more animals you have, you know, if oxygen ever became an issue, which I have no idea, that basis to me, I have no clue. And I'm just basing it off in knowledge, what I know about plants and humans. At some point, if we want a cleaner environment, you know, plants are cleaner at filtering the air. They don't produce waste. And if they do, it's a bio waste uh, mass that sort of biodegrades quickly. So, you know, that can be recomposted into the ground to grow it. And so mm-hmm. from a food standpoint, plants are more circular in the farming and giving back. It doesn't mean animals don't serve their purpose in their manure and stuff like that. It just means at some point we're going to have to figure it out differently. And that doesn't mean there can't be both. It just means, like you said, it's probably going to be more like meat once or twice a week versus meat for every meal. So right. it's just something... 
that I know is coming just based on food. And is it a long ways away? Probably. Um, but as the population's growing so rapidly, we're getting there quicker. So, which I think is one of the things that's great is all the local sourcing, you know, plants and animals and vegetables. And, you know, you should really, I encourage anyone listening to the podcast to go actually explore where their food's coming from. You know, educate yourself. It's, we eat all the time. It's what we do. You know, I think it's, we do that probably more than anything else as human beings other than maybe work or, or be a parent or whatever sibling, but functionally we'd probably do that more than anything else or think about food or go grocery shopping or prepare for things that are coming up like tomorrow for Thanksgiving. You know, I think it is really important, the movement that's going on to know where our food is coming from, but not only knowing it, actually going to see it, you know, go see the local farms, go take a farm tour, see how things actually are, you know, explore the factories on how the animals are done. I mean, really, I think, we sort of don't really understand how in-depth food really goes and, and how it's done or the blueberries that we buy at a grocery store. We could buy local blueberries for like 10 cents more, but we buy them from Chile instead and ship them on a ship. And, you know, what does it mean? Do they still have nutrition in them? Well, you know, how fresh are they? Not as fresh as the one locally, you know, and if we buy the ones more locally for 10 cents more, eventually the demand will go up and they'll produce more supply and maybe it'll even out to where it's not 10 cents more. So things like that, I think are just, I mean, I've opened up a can of worms here, but I appreciate yeah. the conversation. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you can, you, you can definitely talk about this subject for, for hours, but I, I would encourage your listeners if they're interested in this subject, there's a book, by uh, Barbara Kingsolver. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I'm sure you could look it up and find it. And, th- and it's about uh, her living on a farm for a year and committing to eating nothing but food that she and her family grows, as well as the food that's in, in their local community. So at farmer's markets, they, they have a rule where they, where they can't go more than like 10 miles to get any other food. It's a really, really fascinating book about, you know, how to grow. I mean, she goes, goes into the seasons, like what foods are good at certain times, how to grow them, how to find the best food at local markets. So it really eye-opening um, and speaking to your point about, about uh, buying local. Yeah, and I, ha- I myself have read the book, and it's actually called Animal Vegetable Miracle. I remember that's the book. Right. I think that's the one you're referring to. She has many books, if I remember. Um, but I, I read that one, um, gosh, I don't even remember now, but a few years ago. And um, I think it's pretty cool. And it really, it is. Definitely. If you live that way, you're not slaughtering an animal every day. You don't have enough animals. They still have to give birth to mm-hmm. new animals, you know? And so that's right. where we really start to think about how does it work and what is the industrialization of farming in terms of animals really mean, you know, and even fruits and vegetables in a lot of way and how much corn, soybeans and wheat we produce in this country versus, you know, the variety of other fruits and vegetables that are out there. So, um, all right, I want to switch topics a little bit. So Chris, let's get into more of the business stuff because I'm going to keep going down the rabbit hole because my mind's, gone in that direction <laughs> but no it's um you know when you do these events do you do them solo i mean tell me a little bit about how you you get an event how do you put together a team if you have a team things like that so when i was doing the farmer's market it was just me and my wife um i needed my wife there because she kind of ran in front of the house she was handling money operating the cash register and she would help to you know, cut up the pizzas, even cook them sometimes when we were really busy. Um, but mainly it was, it was because she had to handle cash and per the, you know, health code regulations. I mean, you can't handle cash and then go and handle food. You have to like, we had a wash bin there. So because of that, um, that, uh, aspect of handling cash, right, you really need a second person in that type of setup. Now, when I do private events, um, I can actually do those by myself. Uh, if, I would say at like 50, 50 if the party is about 50 to 60 people or less, I can handle that by myself. The one thing with pizza that's tricky, though, like and what I always tell people before they hire me is that 
it, I'm good if, if you guys have other food options going on besides just the pizza. If, it, and, and it's a situation where, um, you, you know, you come up, I have like four pizzas out and people just kind of grab a slice or two at a time and then go and then go on and, and mingle. Um, if it's a situation where they, you have like a, uh, where I'm making pizzas for, for someone as they order, that's where, it, you know, parties become a little bit tricky because it, typically everybody wants to eat at the same time. And pizzas don't really work well in that situation. I don't know if anyone's ever, uh, you know, had like a food truck cater a party where they're doing pizzas. It ends up being a huge, a long wait because even in, in my, you know, my 900 degree ovens that take two or three minutes to cook pizzas. I mean, if you get 50 people all, all ordering at the same time, it just doesn't really work. So for me, I, I, it works a lot better when I, I'm firing out pizzas. I have four pizzas laid out at or six pizzas laid out at a time and people are just taking, you know, a slice or two and going on their merry way. So, um, to answer your question, it kind of depends on, on how many people are, are at the party that I'm, that I'm catering, but generally I can do it by myself if, if it's in that type of setup where people are grabbing and going. Well, and I mean, that's so efficient. I mean, if I, you really think about it, um, you're doing it all yourself. You don't have to worry about labor or overhead and you're making the pizzas. Mm -hmm. I, I bet it's kind of exhausting, but you're probably used to it now. And I say that relatively, people might say that about my life as well and running around and being on planes all the time, but it's, um, yeah. it's, it's cool because I didn't, you know, for me, and I'm just going to, you know, I never thought about it that you could cater events and go to events and almost pop up catering events related around pizza, because in my mind, it always had to be brick and mortar or a truck or whatever. And so, um, that's sort of where I am with that. I think it's just a really cool concept. So obviously when we reached out to each other and talked about the podcast and I looked at it and I'm like, okay, this is a really neat concept because you know, it's, it's unique to me and, and while it's a traditional food and everyone loves pizza, it's hard to get pizza to people, whether when it's outside or it's an event or it's a party. And like you mentioned the football game, you know, how do you get it there? And you figured out a way to do it, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's, that was definitely the hardest part is, uh, you know, I, I had to unload all my, I have a little cart and I have two tables. I mean, all I need is a seven by seven space. Uh, and there was, there was probably 40 or 50 people there. If you go above that, if you're getting into the 100, 150 people person party, I, I probably need both of my ovens, my, my little rock boxes, and I might actually need a little bit of someone else helping me to like cut pizzas up just because the pizzas are going so quickly with that many people. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if it, that's my favorite way to do it. I mean, especially because, you know, my wife is obviously working pro bono, so she, <laughs> she's just doing it to support me. Um, so if I can leave her out of it, that's, that's ideal. Um, or even go to a party where, she can actually just enjoy the party if we know a bunch of people there and I'm just cooking pizzas, you know, uh, and then I'll even like, you know, have a beer, uh, while I'm cooking. I mean, again, it's, it's like a, it's like a passion for me. So, um, I almost enjoy going to like, if, if I have close friends that are throwing a party like that, I'll offer to, to cook pizzas and they can just cover my costs and I'll, I'll just do it, um, as an attendee. And, uh, have a few beers, cook some pizzas. Why not? You know. Well, it's good marketing, I bet as well. Getting people to taste the food and just be there. And I mean, exactly. Which brings me to the next question: Is how do you market your concept? How do you get people to buy in or, or procure your services? You know, it's really just word of mouth. I mean, I I have a a, a nine to five job, um, so this is just something I do on the side. Um, I when I was doing the farmers market, it was every it was every Saturday, and it did get to be a lot. I mean, it was like probably ten hours of prep um, plus another, you know, six or seven hours at the market a week, and and the ten hours of prep was like you know. Every Thursday, uh, Wednesday and Thursday night, I was at the commercial kitchen 
you know, chopping up and uh, toppings and, and prepping the dough and everything. Um, it just got to be a little bit much, especially because I, I have a fairly demanding um, nine to five job. So um, for me going and doing the private parties, where it's just kind of word, word of mouth, people stumble upon my Instagram page and just, you know, send me a private message. And I just, I just kind of do it, you know, once, once a month or so. And that's more my speed than having to do it every, every week. So I'm, I'm actually not really vigilant about marketing it only because it's just kind of, it's more like a hobby for me right now. Um, and then one day, will I be ready to jump off and do it, um, full time? You know, possibly, but, uh, for, for now, um, you know, I'm pretty happy, you know, it's not like I'm in a dead end job, you know, nine to five where nothing's going on. I, I, you know, I have a pretty good job, um, full time. So I'm not in any rush to, to do the pizzas full time at this particular moment. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And, and you never know where it's going to go. And when the time is right for another season in your life or a transition, or if it's the right way to go. I think you'll know for sure. Um, but I think that's a, a great thing that you're sort of letting it do what it's going to do. And and when the time is right, if you need to push it to grow it and, and take it on full time, I think that's pretty accurate in the way it should go from if it, my opinion mattered. But it's um, just really cool that you have such a, a, a good mindset about it. You know, let's see where this goes. I, you know, I'm not committing everything to it right now, which you could if you wanted to. But let's see where it goes and, and let it grow on its own and let word of mouth take its path, which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, the way I, uh, I'm also, I mean... Eventually, I will move on from this nine to five, and I and I'm I have another kind of uh, side project going. Another reason why I stepped out of the farmers market is because I'm working on a um, actually a little frozen pizza kit that that hopefully will be available in, in grocery stores. And if that really takes off, then I'll be able to kind of do that in tandem with the pop ups and really make pizza a full-time business. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that, um, you know, the frozen pizza kits kind of give me, um, that foundation to do that in the, in the next year or so. So to kind of, um, you know, address your point, I mean, hopefully that's the point at, at which I know that I can kind of jump off and do pizza full-time. And I look forward to hearing about that. And we should probably, as you get more ready to launch that, maybe we'll do another podcast and talk about that whole concept as well and, and help push that out for you as well. If that's something you might be interested in. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I like yeah, the idea. Yeah, a little teaser. Yeah, you got it. And so everyone can expect that episode when, when you're ready, Chris. So we'll prepare something like that, and I'll keep an eye out for it on social media. But when you're ready please reach out to me so we can, we can go ahead and do that. So the next part I, I'd want to talk a little bit about Chris is you're obviously you've started this business and, and you want to grow it. And now you're, you're branching out into frozen pizza and things like that. The kits, I mean, you know, sort of tell me like how your mind works. I mean, what are you envisioning? How are you, what motivates you and drives you to keep moving forward with this? I mean, like you said, you had a nine to five, so it's not like you have to do this, but what is driving you? What is sort of the power behind your desire to do this? Well, I think, um, kind of getting, uh, t you know, I touched on it a, a little bit, but I feel like food is a, is a way to really kind of you know, to, to get food out to the masses in a, in a responsible way as a way for me to not only, um, you know, explore my passions of just cooking in general and, and creating great food, but also to help impact the world in a positive way um, by being responsible, responsible about the ingredients that I'm putting in the food that I'm getting out to everybody. So that's kind of part of the motivation, uh, definitely to make an, an impact on the world and do something that I love. Um, but also, you know, I, uh, just, you know, getting a taste of, of working, uh, you know, for yourself doing the, the, uh, cast, the, the pop-up, uh, mar at the farmer's market, it really kind of gives you a taste of entrepreneur entrepreneurship and working for yourself. And for me, it's just, it's much more exciting than, um, 
than working for somebody else. So that's another big motivator. And also, you know, I think it opens up a possibility to just be a little bit more free um, to hopefully um, be able to travel and, and really not, not work at all. If I, if I don't really, if I'm not really wanting to at that particular time in my life, you know, maybe at some point I'm, I've hired somebody to make the, you know, some of these products that I want to put in grocery stores where uh, I'm a little bit more hands off and kind of working remotely, being able to travel and have the, the freedom to, to, to work from wherever I want. So there's kind of those three kind of motivations, you know, the ability to impact the world, um, to just work for myself and, and really just kind of have the freedom to, to, to not work if I don't feel like it uh, at some point, um, I think are, are big for me. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of food and beverage entrepreneurs, and I can't speak for all entrepreneurs because I, I concentrate on food and beverage and, and why I've dabbled in things like IT and investments and stuff like that. My knowledge is there in dealing with food and beverage entrepreneurs is that a lot of people, you know, it's the whole reason we're in business. Uh, we don't, you know, food service partners where I am, we don't build brands. We don't, we don't do that. We don't have our own brands. We don't go out and push that stuff. We have food entrepreneurs like yourself that come to us to make their food and make their goods for grocery stores or hospitals or whatever, jails, you name it. We produce it for them. And then that person goes out and markets and helps us with R&D with our team and goes out and pushes their product and goes to live the life. And then that way they can take off if they need to. They can still have time with their family, you know, or they turn some, in some cases they turn over the reins to us for the most part, other than the meetings with the people and they handle those things. So they do have more freedom in their life. And it's a very interesting thing that a lot of people build these brands and they get to a certain point. They're like, okay, I can't do this on my own. I can either hire people and still manage them which a lot of people do. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's also the part of, I want more freedom in my life. I want more time with my family. They have companies like us that exist that do it, can do it all over the country. And then it sort of eases their mind that they don't have to do it 24-7 and build this brand on their own. You know, while they build it, we sort of support the back entry, which is a lot what people do, you know, food's a tangible item and it's a lot to manage the daily operations of a food facility. I certainly don't do it. I have a team that does it at food service partners and they have teams that work for them and so on and so forth. And over 350 employees later, that's sort of where we're looking. And it has become so big that, I mean, we're literally tripling and quadrupling the size of our company over the next year because there are so many more food entrepreneurs that are getting out there. And I want to talk about this as well, what you're doing with the pizza concept, is because a lot of people, were, we grew up in a world where there was a mainstream, there's only these certain cereals, there was these certain, you know, Jaquita bananas, for example, there was these certain, you know, chips, you know, you had Uts and, and whoever else and Pringles, for example. But now life isn't like mm-hmm. that anymore. There's so many entrepreneurs that are out there because we all can customize the food that we eat. You know, I don't have to eat Skippy's peanut butter or Peter Pan peanut butter. I can have a Justin's peanut butter or I can have a local Georgia grinders out of Georgia that has all natural peanuts or almond butter or, or cashew butter or pecan butter or whatever it is. There's all these entrepreneurs that have emerged that you know, aren't as big as the huge, you know, ones, but they are gaining ground and building these businesses. And it's what you're doing with the pizza. And I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. And you know what people like, how you've got five years of experience of doing the catering, you know, and you've Mm -hmm. developed and perfected your skills. So now it can carry over into a retail setting. And I think that's pretty awesome. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm hoping it works out. <laughs> so, so Chris, I mean, uh, as we sort of start wrapping this up, what are some of the hardships that you've had and sort of the lessons that you've learned from them? Well, um, I, I think that one realization that I, I had, um, getting into, uh, food in general, I mean, it, uh, I, 
We also launched another product probably three or four years ago. It was a coconut milk yogurt um, frozen bar that we had in a few. We actually did get it onto shelves, um, but it just didn't really um, – we, we couldn't make it take off because we – I mean, we probably, and it was the first product we did, and, and uh, we probably didn't really think through the business model properly from the start. And once we actually got to the point of where we needed to invest like maybe $20,000 into it to really um, make it take off into a huge run, um, we realized that we were going to have to charge you know, probably like $12 or $13 for a box of four popsicles in order to make any money. And it kind of really taught me that, that food, I mean, it's, um, it's complicated because the, the major food producers just have so much buying power that they are going to be able to kind of they're going to be able to price you out, um, you know, usually. And, and there's a reason why, um, you know, some ideas aren't on the shelves. Um, and it's because other people have, have thought of it and just realized that it was too expensive and that's why they, they haven't done it. So, you know, I think um, just the challenge of creating good food that that's responsible to the, you know, to the planet also, and, and also making a little bit of, of money is, is a very hard thing to do. Um, and I think just like kind of going through that experience of, of, you know, realizing that we didn't really think the, the business model through and that you have to really, you know, figure out what your costs are like upfront. That's the first thing you need to think of before you, you start on a venture, you know, um, and kind of failing at that, um, for a lack of a better, better word was, was definitely a hard thing to go through. Um, and just, and just, you know, realizing that, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough business where there's big players that are always gonna, you know, be there to kind of compete with you and it's hard and building a brand in that, um, in that environment is tough. No, and I, I agree with you. And there's so many unforeseen costs that that the big guys have, and I and I think I want to talk about it because we haven't really talked about it. Is you know people don't realize how many how much cost is in food. I mean, it's not only the R and D to develop it and the cost that you spend on materials to do it. It's then the marketing and the labor and the food safety plans and the the, if you have to have it reviewed by a government agency, then there's audits to audit the, your system so you're up to code. And then there's nutritional panels to be developed and designing of boxes and how are you going to ship it and the cost of shipping it and the labor that's involved in all of it and not overshooting it, you know, because inventory exactly. is the cash. Mar- Go ahead. Right. In the end, the margins the margins are usually pretty thin in food, and and really the way that you widen them is with purchasing power. And as a small guy, I mean that's just really it's really hard to do. You almost have to just like um, the business model for some of these social so, social media platforms. Like you create a followership, like get the followers first. Yeah. Like. Whether you're making money or not, just ignore that for a little bit. Um, you know, get your followers, and once you get a followership, then you then you have the ability to maybe dump some money into it, buy some equipment, and then reduce your costs from there. But don't expect to make much money on, on the you know in the first two or three years of being in in a food business. So that was that was kind of a harsh reality for us, for sure. Yeah, and you are 100% spot on. And I, you know, if I mentor anyone or I have anyone that we work with that comes to me for advice or even people that are just looking for advice because of being in the business so long, it's the thing I say. I mean, you're looking, food is not one of those things that takes off right away. It doesn't happen. And one of the reasons is you may know how great your food is, but if it's all about 
people trying it and tasting it, which is one and of itself difficult to get it to spread quickly. But the second part is exactly what you said, is how do you gain a following? Social media is great because you can use photos and stuff like that. And But word of mouth and food still really matters um, because it's literally food in your mouth marketing. And it's how do you do that? So it's understanding that it's really the hockey stick model. And, and while that's a lot of startup businesses and getting them off the ground, food is that much more because it's not, you can't sell it off of a box. People may buy it once, but if they buy it once, how the flavor and the experience and the story and all of these things really matter, which social media now does so much of, you know, if you can get people to taste it, if you can get them to listen to your story, if you can get them to buy into the concept, if they're in your case, you know, their moral and ethical idea of food aligns with yours, that matters, you know, so there's so many different things that matter for that following. I agree with you, before you pump real money into it, you need to understand the hockey stick, because even if you pump money in at the beginning, it doesn't matter, you're going to have the same system no matter what, before it really takes off, and you're going to have to put in time to marketing, and trade shows, and uh, you did farmers markets, and, and catering, and how do you get the food out there? There's a lot of that buildup and it, it's tough and it's a lot of patience and you know, you're going to have to have thick skin because most of the comments you hear at the beginning are not always positive. Um, so right. that's a yeah. tough one. I mean, I think my, I think what I would like to do is, is really get that followership in a, in a small sort of eco ecosystem and then, you know, take that, um, that sample size and show it to an investor and get someone else to invest, yeah. <laughs> you know, drop uh, like a bunch of those. That's probably the smartest way to do it. But, um, but first, yeah, yeah. You, you, you got to get the followership. You got to get some loyal fans under your belt before you do that. So absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, all right. So Chris, my last question for you is, is, we're sort of on this leadership kick. We're kind of in the second season of recording and change the formats a little bit. But one of the questions I'd like to ask everyone is, um, you know, as a person that's developing their own business and, and sort of become the leader of your brand, I mean, what are some of the core values that you think are important to a person or an entrepreneur um, to have like some of the core values related to leading your company? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's definitely important to, um, before you start out, to think about what what it is you're trying to do, um, besides just make money. Um, for us, I mean, it, we've touched on it a bit, it's like, how do we how do we make an impact on the world? How do we show people that you can, you know, have animal free food and still have it be, um, you know, enjoyable. Um, how do you, uh, you know, create, you know, packaging that's, that's compostable that, um, uses your organic ingredients. I mean, whatever you, you know, whatever values you want to infuse into the business, you know, write them down and, and, you know, put them up on the wall and just have them, have them there to to remind you of what what it is that you're doing because I think you know having that physical reminder um, you know will get you through some some hard times you know when you're burning the midnight oil when something unfortunate happens because it always does um, you know having that sort of mantra or mission statement kind of in in the back of your mind or like physically up in your office or um, or bedroom or wherever you do your work I mean I think is important. Um, and especially if you have employees that they can physically see that um, manifestation of what you're trying to do um, up there. I mean, I think I think that's important. I mean, I I certainly haven't gotten to the, to the point of running a team yet, so I, I'm, I may not be the best person to answer that question. But that's kind of one of the things that I that I envisioned as uh, you know uh, a practice that I envision. Um, as the uh, as my company grows so no and i agree with that uh the particularly the part about posting stuff somewhere where you can visualize it every day and and make sure that it's in your mind or eye view on a regular basis so you're aiming for that i think the power of visual visualization 
on so many levels is so important, particularly in business. Like you said, if you want a biodegradable packaging, write it on something and post it so you see it all the time. So you're constantly reminded that that's a, a goal of yours in this business model. And, you know, everything that you think of in food, you post it up. You know, Deborah and I do a lot of this in our own business or the ventures that we do is you get all your ideas out there and you flush through them. But when you see them all together and you write new ones up there and while it may grow, they're all there so you can see it. And for whatever magical reason and power of the brain or power of attraction or whatever it is, that stuff starts to come into fruition um, just by having it out there and looking Mm -hmm. at it. So I think it's really important as well that that's what people do and and grow and it's an important value to have is the discipline to do that and to look at it every day even if it's a glimpse so for sure well chris thank you so much for for taking the time uh, the day before thanksgiving to um to really jump on the podcast with me and and tell us your story about cosmic pie pizza um, and before we get off, as, as we sort of finish things off, can you tell people where they can follow, find you online and on social media? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Cosmic Pie Pizza. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, really, that's uh, mostly where I'm responsive is on, is on Instagram. So find me there and you can follow me. Shoot me a, a message if you're in the Bay Area and you need a, a, a private event catered. I'm, I'm happy to, to chat. Awesome. Thank you again, Chris. And thank you everyone for listening in. Everyone enjoy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone in the United States that's out there celebrating and everyone have a great Wednesday. Thank you guys. And thank you again, Chris, for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Jeffrey.